You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Tuesday, December 29th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank Plaza Tire and Auto Service, locally owned, complete auto repair for all makes and models since 1950. Reminding listeners, well-running vehicles are essential for safety and performance. In Penn Valley, Grass Valley, Colfax, and Nevada City, Plaza Tire and Auto Service. Today, following NPR headlines and regional weather, NPR reports on issues the Supreme Court may be looking at in their new term. We have this week's water news with hydrogeologist Steve Baker. NPR reports on the difficulty small towns are having finding health care workers. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you Food Sleuth. And at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says $600 stimulus checks could arrive in some bank accounts as soon as this evening. Whether the amount of pandemic relief will be increased, which President Trump says he wants and the House has approved, is uncertain. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is tying larger stimulus checks to ending immunity for Internet companies from civil liabilities. President-elect Joe Biden is encouraging President Trump to get the coronavirus vaccine and to clearly and unambiguously urge all Americans to take it. In an address today, Biden also criticized the Trump administration for falling behind in distributing and administering the vaccine. A few weeks ago, the Trump administration suggested that 20 million Americans could be vaccinated by the end of December. With only a few days left in December, we've only vaccinated a few million so far. And December has been the deadliest month in the U.S. outbreak. As NPR's Amy Held reports, officials are now warning it's likely to get worse next month. It will take time for things to turn around in the new year, public health officials say. And despite their drumbeat warnings for people to stay home, TSA reports since Saturday it's processed more than a million travelers a day. That's down more than 50 percent from this time last year. But with an already out-of-control surge, top infectious disease doctor Anthony Fauci says post-holidays, his concern is if people are congregating indoors. We're going to have an increase superimposed upon that surge, which could make January even worse than December. Meantime, distribution of the vaccine has seen delays. The CDC says some 2 million people have gotten it so far. President-elect Joe Biden says when he takes office next month, he will work to speed up the process. Amy Held, NPR News. The Senate is due to vote tomorrow on overriding President Trump's veto of the annual defense spending bill. The House voted to override it yesterday, and as NPR's James Jones reports, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is urging senators to do the same. President Trump had lashed out at Republican leaders in Congress following an overwhelming bipartisan House vote to override his defense bill veto. But McConnell remains determined to enact a spending bill that has passed with bipartisan support each of the last 59 years. For the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces, failure is simply not an option. So when it's our turn in Congress to have their backs, failure is not an option either. 
I would urge my colleagues to support this legislation one more time. If Senate Republicans follow McConnell's lead, it would be the first time Congress has voted to override a Trump veto. James Jones, NPR News. This is NPR. President-elect Joe Biden's incoming national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, says the acting defense secretary was wrong to say that the Department of Defense is fully cooperating with the Biden transition. Sullivan tells NPR it's been 11 days since DOD has granted a meeting to Biden's transition team, and the Pentagon hasn't responded to several important detailed requests for information. The Federal Aviation Administration has issued new rules governing the use of drones. NPR's Emma Peasley reports. Drones can now fly at night, over people, and in some cases, over moving vehicles. This is according to new guidelines from federal regulators. FAA Administrator Steve Dickinson says these new rules, quote, get us closer to the day when we will more routinely see drone operations, such as the delivery of packages. Most drones will also need to include remote ID technology so both the drone and its operator can be identified by law enforcement officials. According to the Department of Transportation, drones are the fastest growing segment in all of transportation, with more than 1.7 million registered. Emma Peasley, NPR News. A magnitude 6.4 earthquake has struck Croatia, killing at least seven people in the town of Petrenja, southwest of the capital Zagreb. Rescuers are working to pull people trapped in the rubble of collapsed buildings. The tremors were felt as far away as Vienna, Austria. I'm Barbara Klein, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, tonight we'll see increasing clouds with a low around 32. On Wednesday, there's a 30% chance of showers after 4 p.m., otherwise partly sunny skies throughout the day with a high near 51. And Wednesday night showers are likely mainly after 10 p.m., otherwise cloudy skies with a low around 35. New precipitation amounts between a quarter and half inch are possible. In Sacramento tonight, skies will be partly cloudy with a low around 34. On Wednesday, patchy frost is expected before 10 a.m., otherwise partly sunny skies with a high near 55 and an overnight low around 42, with a 40% chance of showers mainly after 10 p.m. New precipitation amounts of less than a tenth of an inch are possible. In Truckee tonight, there will be increasing clouds with a low around 13. Wednesday will be cloudy through mid-morning, then gradually clearing with a high near 40. And Wednesday night, snow showers are possible mainly after 9 p.m. with a low around 23. New snow accumulation of 1 to 2 inches is possible. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be partly cloudy with a low around 34. Wednesday will be partly sunny with a high near 53 and an overnight low around 39. Showers are likely mainly after 10 p.m. and new precipitation amounts between a tenth and quarter of an inch are possible. Goodbye 2020. My name is Claudio Mendoza, 
and we invite you to tune in tomorrow evening as we look back at some of the stories that define 2020. Support America! Prosecute a police officer for murder. Serial killer Valentine. In spite of ourselves, we'll end up sitting on a rainbow. Against all odds, honey, we're the big door prize. At the beginning of the new year, the U.S. Supreme Court embarks on the second half of its term. It will do so with a fortified 6-3 conservative majority. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg has this preview. For decades, the court's five-justice conservative majority was split between those who wanted to move slowly in a more conservative direction and others who wanted to move more aggressively. But now, with the more centrist conservatives retired and three Trump appointees on the court, there's a conservative majority of six, meaning one vote to spare. No longer, as last term, does the reliably conservative but more incrementalist Chief Justice Roberts have the controlling vote. The other five can prevail without him. Bottom line, the current court may well be the most conservative since the 1930s. Tom Goldstein is founder and publisher of SCOTUS Blog. It really is going to be the case that on a lot of these issues, you have five to go fast. And so on religion, abortion, gun rights and race, for example, there is a solid majority to change the law and move whip quick. Already argued this term, but not decided yet, are two big cases. One tests whether the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare, must be struck down entirely on a technical point after being upheld twice before by the high court. The other case, heard earlier this term, tests whether the city of Philadelphia may refuse to award some foster care contracts to Catholic social services because CSS, based on religious objections, refuses to screen LGBT couples as required by the city's non-discrimination laws. The tea leaves, as of now, indicate CSS will win, meaning the contracting power of government, the one area long viewed as relatively immune to religious challenges, would now be fair game. As constitutional law professor Josh Blackman observes, Quite significant uh, a departure from what the court might have done 15 or 20 years ago. Indeed, even before the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, there was a firm conservative majority on the court in cases involving religious liberty. The one case where Chief Justice Roberts voted with the liberals was on the power of governors to limit attendance at religious services in order to curb the spread of the coronavirus. In what could be a harbinger of things to come, Roberts' vote became irrelevant after Barrett joined the court and provided a fifth vote against Governor Andrew Cuomo's actions in New York. Similar orders limiting church and synagogue attendance elsewhere were soon struck down. On the question of executive authority, the court's conservative majority has generally deferred to President Trump's muscular assertions of presidential power. So one big question now is whether the court will be similarly deferential to Biden. I think the short answer is probably not. University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek. Some of that's going to reflect the fact that the court will be more suspicious and skeptical of some of the policies that the Biden administration attempts to pursue by executive order. SCOTUS blogs Goldstein agrees. Historically, the Supreme Court's view about whether a president has powers has tended to track whether the justices in the majority liked the president and his policies. Meanwhile, there are the hot-button social issues. 
Will Roe v. Wade, for instance, the court's 47-year-old abortion rights precedent, be overturned? There are two schools of thought on that. One is that the court will systematically hollow out the right to abortion so that it's a right on paper only. The other is that time's up. Here's NYU law professor Melissa Murray. There is, I think, a galvanizing view within the pro-life movement that the time has come to call the question. If Roe is to be overruled, however, it likely will take more than a few years to come to fruition. On guns, though, the court looks for the first time to have a clear majority that is hostile to gun regulation. Last term, the court punted and punted again, declining to hear 10 gun rights cases. Presumably, Chief Justice Roberts' then-deciding vote was still in doubt. But now, with new Justice Barrett on the court, there appear to be five conservative votes ready to march down the path of expansive gun rights, and gun rights activists are already teeing up new cases. Again, here's Professor Blackman of South Texas College of Law, Houston. I can tell you people are getting more aggressive. Gun rights groups will be emboldened to try to push to new frontiers. Election cases are also before the court, though none that will challenge President Trump's election defeat. While the court held the line on President Trump's post-election efforts to change the election outcome, election law experts expect the conservative majority will allow all manner of pre-election restrictions in the future, even if those restrictions impact minorities more severely. Again, Tom Goldstein. For the Chief Justice and easily a majority of this conservative Supreme Court, their views about race are fully baked. We should not have decisions and we should not have laws that are based on racial considerations. In the same vein, by next term, the court will likely hear arguments in one of several cases testing affirmative action in higher education. The court for a half century has repeatedly ruled that some consideration of race in college admissions is okay, but a racial quota is not. Now there may well be a conservative majority to reverse those rulings and bar all consideration of racial diversity. After that, affirmative action in employment could be next. In the coming year, other key developments as well could shape the Supreme Court's future. 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer, one of the court's three remaining liberals, could step down. But he may feel constrained by the fact that Republicans currently control the U.S. Senate and GOP leader Mitch McConnell has never hesitated to use his power as majority leader to block or advance Supreme Court nominees based solely on whether the nominating president is a fellow Republican or a Democrat. So Breyer may stay his hand. If, however, the Democrats win two Senate seats in Georgia, giving them the upper hand in the Senate for the first time in 10 years, Breyer may well pull the trigger on retirement. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Well, um, welcome to KVMR, Steve. Hey, glad to be back. Last time of the year. Right, we're taking it right to the end. Right till the end. Steve, uh, a COVID uh, relief package is slowly moving through the federal government. Is there any financial support coming to help water supply issues? Paul, there actually is right now. The Congress and Senate, they approved $638 million to forgive overdue water and sewer bills. Okay, that's a first. I don't think we've ever, a Congress has ever set aside money to assist 
to pay water bills. That's never happened before. It's intended to help the low-income families, uh, those that are experiencing these financial hardships at this time because of COVID. But uh, there is a concern. There's always a but in this, right? Uh, There's there's a concern that, uh, you know, there's no mention of no prohibitions on shutting off water services during the COVID emergencies. So that is keeping some people... Uh, on edge. And then there, there are groups like the Circle of Blue, uh, the, their investigators, their journalists, who have really looked into this stuff, and they don't think there's enough money in the $638 million to deal with a California, you know, by itself, let alone the entire United States. So, so you know, may, maybe we'll be, fall short on the amount of dollars. The House Democrats back in the day, they, they had asked for $1.5 billion, so we, they, we received one-third of that. Billion. Yeah, I did say billion, yeah. Yes, Steve, <laughs> how, what else can we expect from the federal government? Well, hey, President-elect Joe Biden's a different person than, than President Trump. So uh, Joe Biden is building a team of, of really seasoned government professionals who are going to be missioned, and they're being told, everyone's being told, that uh, they will be quite aggressive with the regulatory agendas. So I'm expecting to see a lot in the news right now. It, it's, it will have challenges galore, I'm, I'm sure. Senate still, in the moment here, is divided. We have the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, and uh, we're still waiting on the results or you know how this Georgia runoff is going to turn out. That's, that's a big deal. So it's just going to be difficult all, all the way along. If the uh, Senate is dominated by re- the Republicans, uh, then I would expect uh, our president-elect Biden to probably use a lot of executive orders. And uh, and regulatory actions, he's being told, according to the sources that I've been been reading, that he's not to waste any time. Get the regulatory process going right away because it takes a while to get things passed. And one of the things that President-elect has done is he's he's brought on board people like Gina McCarthy. She's a former EPA administrator who was responsible for a number of Obama era uh, rules back in the day. She'll be serving as a domestic climate czar. And then there's Michael Reagan. He'll be running the EPA. He's an top. He's a top environmental regulator. Uh, he was for North Carolina for over four years, and also he was involved before in the EPA's air quality program, but under both Obama and Bush. So these are pretty decent people. But again, it's going to be tough. And the Trump administration uh, rolled back a lot of environmental laws, so there are many repairs needed. Well, how about? Uh Water issues here in California. Any changes you see? Uh, yeah, there there is. There's a very interesting one. It happened down in Monterey County, California. A lawsuit uh, went forward. It was about per- the permitting process for wells, for groundwater wells in Stanislaus County. And it reached the Supreme Court of California. Now, the court, at the end of the day, the court said that, that every county in the state's been permitting wells in violation of California law. That's a biggie. That could cause some. I uh, could cause a wave of change in our entire state, not not just over there. Uh, drilling new wells and getting permits have to uh, have have always assumed that the CEQA was exempt. In other words, the California California Environmental Quality Act that they figured all of these wells are exempt from that. Now they're saying no. That's that's not how we work. The process is that we look at those kinds of things. The courts sees this ex- these exemptions as not being correct because there are some wells that will have environmental impacts, and we have to consider those things. 
So right now in Monterey County, they're writing new rules that will identify the wells that would require CEQA, the CEQA process, the, the uh, environmental quality process, and those that don't. And then uh, I, I think, and I've been saying this for years, that we have a significant vulnerability in using our wells. And this is only one uh, thing that could very easily happen. It it uh, it would be more consistent with how we think in California, and uh, we have to be quite careful with that. Well, is there likely to be people that yell out more? We're having more regulations, and making absolutely it more expensive and more difficult. Oh, absolutely! It's the same uh, dialogue again and again and again. Okay, well, well, we'll talk about that at a later time. We will. I can hear it now. <laughs> Well, okay, uh, we're just about in, uh, you know, 2020 is almost hindsight. Oh, my gosh. I love that. That's good. I love That's that. That's a good thing. Uh, we're just days away from 2021. Uh, what insights or suggestions uh, do you have for bringing in the new year? You know, I'll go light here. I mean, first of all, appreciate what you what you have, okay, and in resources. So look at your water supply. Really appreciate that it exists wherever its source is. Uh, likewise for food, for shelter, and then, you know, for goodness sakes, employment. Um, so many of us, certainly in the retail business and some of the other uh, businesses, the you know, restaurant businesses, were, were being hurt hugely by, by this COVID uh, epidemic, this problem that we have. So um, I would say for the new year, make a commitment to yourself that you will always preserve as much of these resources as you can. In other words, you will take care of these things. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of unknowns. There are a lot of uncertainties right now. We can all attest to that. So the second thing is, I would say, Appreciate the people relationships that are connected to these resources. And I'm talking about your neighbors. I'm talking about our local farmers. I'm talking about the farm, whoever the farmers are that, that, may, that grow your food, the essential workers in our community, your water purveyors, power companies, fire departments, and of course, KVMR, <laughs> you know, because we all have to survive this. We all have a huge amount of, of benefit to our community at large. And we want to recognize that and we want to appreciate that. So, so I, I really think that uh, by uh, we know that the uncertainties are going to disappear if we come on strong as far as having a good knowledge base. We, we, we have to understand the problem and then working together, you know, within our communities. So, so we have a bright future for 2021. I truly see it that way. Uh, and it will be quite bright as long as we continue to behave as stewards of our of our resources. So, Paul, happy New Year to you, and happy New Year to everyone else listening today on KVMR. Thank you so much, Steve, and talk to you next year. You betcha. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at stevebaker at operationunite.co. The virus infecting thousands of Americans a day is also attacking the country's social fabric, especially in some small towns. As Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, the sometimes divisive politics surrounding the coronavirus is roiling rural communities and threatening to alienate some of their most critical residents, healthcare workers. 
Ten years ago, Dr. Christy Darnauer and her husband moved to tiny Sterling, Kansas to raise their kids steeped in small-town values. The values of hard work, the value of community, taking care of your neighbor, like that's what small towns shout from the rooftops, like this is what we're good at. We are salt-of-the-earth people who care about each other. And here I am saying, then wear a mask because that protects your precious neighbor. But Darnair's medical advice was met with contempt from some friends, neighbors, and patients. COVID cases in the county started to climb. Other small Kansas towns turned into some of the pandemic's hottest hotspots. It's heartbreaking because we, we say this is what we value. And then when we actually had the chance to walk it out, we did it really poorly. The pushback was too much. Darnauer resigned her job as Rice County Medical Director. She felt disrespected, even betrayed. Hard things should bring us together. And instead, this hard thing has driven a wedge between us. And that wedge is splitting off healthcare workers from some communities that desperately need them. More than a quarter of all public health administrators in Kansas quit, retired, or got fired this year. Some got death threats. Some had to hire armed guards. These are leaders in their community, and they are leaving broken. That's Vicki Cauley-Akers, a population health professor at the University of Kansas. And she says they're leaving at a terrible time. The pandemic is still raging. Vaccines need to get from cities to small towns and into people's arms. And who, who is going to take the jobs that healthcare directors are leaving? We think it will have a profound effect on recruitment. It's not a secret that the position is open because of extreme tension between the health department director and the city commission or county commission, or because the person had required a guard. Alan Morgan, who runs the National Rural Health Association, says this is happening across a lot of rural America. It's been a, a terrible, an absolute terrible, no good year for rural health. Rural hospitals were in deep trouble before the pandemic. COVID made matters worse, filling hospitals with desperately sick, highly contagious patients, running staff ragged, and filling the air with vitriol against medical expertise. Rural health care jobs can be hard to fill in the best of times. Now, Morgan says many rural hospitals are downright desperate. Community after community after community, it, all I hear about is workforce, workforce, workforce. Um, losing clinical staff, trying to attract clinical staff into these communities, it it is taking up the full time of our members right now. Closing rural hospitals cuts access to health care in places where more residents are older, sicker, and poorer. It also undermines the rural economy. Hospitals are often the biggest employers in small towns that have them. And Chris Merritt, director of the Illinois Institute for Rural Affairs, says the people they employ are absolutely vital. They are really the lifeblood of any community and a rural community in particular. Well-paid, life-saving experts in extremely short supply. Merritt says towns that let pandemic politics drive medical professionals away are choosing rugged individualism over the common good. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris. Closing out today's newscast, we have Mark Cunaberti with a commentary. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. The expectations of investors can vary depending on current market environments. This can be best illustrated in my own experience when meeting with new clients to evaluate their needs and expectations. Humorously, most new clients always say the same thing when asked what they would like the portfolio to accomplish. They'll tell me, I want to take some risk and hopefully make some money, but don't want to lose any. 
This can be summed up by saying they want to establish a conservative defense while maintaining a strong offense. Although a football team can do this, in investing, the posture is either conservative, moderate, or aggressive, with varying degrees in between, of course. It cannot be both. One can adopt different strategies with different accounts. For example, having a Roth in an aggressive stance because of the tax structure of a Roth and having a trust or other IRA type account in a conservative posture. What strategy is used in each account has to do with the type of account and the risk tolerance and expectations of the investor when it comes to each account. Expectations can also change in different market environments, and it's this type of change that can present challenges to professional money managers like myself. For instance, in rallying markets, investors can catch the greed bug and will call their advisors wanting to go more aggressive. Basically, they watch the evening news and they see the markets rally and they want more profits. FOMO, F-O-M-O, is the term professionals use to describe this posture. FOMO stands for fear of missing out. Advisors can lose clients in this scenario if the client thinks he or she is not making enough money. In falling markets, however, the investor presents another side of himself or herself and hence another problem for the advisor. When markets crater, the investors will get scared and want to go to more conservative postures or just get out of stocks altogether. The greed bug has now been replaced by panic mode. The investor is no longer worried about the return on his money, but only the return of his money. It's for this reason, ensuring a good match between the investor and the advisor is an important aspect when selecting both the advisor and the client. Although investors select advisors as a common occurrence, the advisor should also be selective in choosing his clients. Although most advisors will take all clients because the more money an advisor has under their management, the more money the advisor makes. It is in my opinion that advisors should not just take all clients that come to them. Instead, they should consider carefully the attention a particular client might require. And if the client also has reasonable expectations and a reasonable understanding of what it means to be invested in the markets. Those advisors not using discretion in their client acceptance methodology could find themselves in multiple phone conversations or face-to-face -face meetings trying to explain strategies and market realities a little bit more often than they prefer. Investors should also decide if they want to stay in the market, no matter what happens. Although many advisors use the term in it for the long term and never consider selling no matter what the market does, this strategy may cause issues for clients as markets drop over a prolonged period of time. I find many investors think they can weather market downturns, but during severe and prolonged crashes, almost all investors will start to panic and think about getting out of at least some of their positions. I am of the opinion a stop out or stop point should be in place by the advisor for a last ditch effort at hopefully limiting losses. After all, although markets tend to drift higher over time, no one can guarantee at some point it might not recover or at the minimum take years to do so. The idea might seem ludicrous to some advisors and they want you to stay in for the long term, but guaranteeing market performance in any direction is not only foolhardy, it is illegal for an advisor to do so. In conclusion, evaluating expectations as to portfolio performance will go a long way in addressing an investor's greed and panic moments, and it would be prudent to spend a considerable amount of time going over what is expected in a portfolio before committing any funds into the stock market. 
That does it for today's Money Matters. The opinions expressed here are my opinions only and not those of any bank or investment advisory firm, nor of this station, its staff, members, or underwriters. Nothing meant here is to ensure a guarantee or be construed as individual investment advice. I hold California Insurance License OL34249, am a licensed Medicare agent, and maintain a website, moneymanagementradio.com, where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. My name's Mark Kudaberti. That's our newscast for this evening. Coming up next, we bring you Food Sleuth and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For KVMR and Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson wishing you a fabulous evening.